0: How many of you in here are in your 20s? Just raise your hand if you're in your 20s. How many of you will will one day be in your 20s? All right. How many of you used to be in your 20s? Okay, good. Well, we've got everybody covered now. I'm going to share a little story with you, true life story about a guy in his 20s. In the year 336 B.C., nearly 200 years before these oracles were given to Zechariah, 200 years after, excuse me, after these oracles were given to Zechariah. A young man named Alexander was crowned king of Macedon after the death of his father, Philip. Now, in the years before his death, Philip had conquered all of the region of Greece and Macedon. And three years after uh, after he died, after, well, in the year after Philip died, his son Alexander became king. And three years after his coronation of king, at the ripe old age of 23, Alexander set out to overthrow the most powerful kingdom of that era, which was the the kingdom of Persia that was ruled by Darius III. After rather handily conquering most of, of Asia Minor, Alexander determined to lay claim to Egypt before continuing on to that eastern region of Mesopotamia to conquer the rest of the Persian kingdom and beyond that. To get to Egypt, he had to go through the region of Syria and Palestine. It's kind of hard to see on this map. It's right in here. Now, that route would also take him through the the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, or the, the western coast of that, of that region on the Mediterranean. And it would take him through several critical port cities. Cities that the Persian kingdom depended upon for supply and for commerce. Cities like Sidon and Tyre and Gaza. After conquering the coastal regions of Syria in the north, he besieged Tyre and Sidon. There was a seven months siege of the fortified city of Tyre. And that siege is still fodder for military historians today. He then moved south to conquer the fortresses of the Philistines. After a four-month siege of the city of Gaza, and yes, it's the, the same city that you hear about in the news all the time. It's a strategic city in the region called the Gaza Strip. After conquering this, this, that city and the other strongholds of the Philistines, Alexander headed east toward Jerusalem. But he never invaded Jerusalem. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now a great many conservative Bible scholars consider this Syrian and Palestinian campaign of Alexander, known as Alexander the Great, to be the near-term fulfillment of the events that are prophesied right here in Zechariah chapter 9. The correlation between the progress of Alexander's campaign and the detail of the events in this chapter is undeniable. All of the places listed in Zechariah 9 verses 1 through 7 were the homelands of historic enemies of Israel and Judah. And if you trace the locations of these places in the order in which they are laid out in this passage, you'll see a definite progression from north to south, through Syria, through Tyre and Sidon, through the port cities and cities of the Philistines and then, in in verse 8, to Jerusalem. Hadrach, which is mentioned in verse 1, is is directly associated in that verse with Damascus, which was the the capital of of the region of Syria, or Aram. Hamath, in verse 2, is believed to be the the site of the modern-day city called Hama in Syria. Tyre and Sidon, verses 2 through 4, were once powerful city-states on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the west of Damascus in what is now Lebanon. Tyre was an island fortress that was considered almost impenetrable. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod, mentioned in verses 5 through 7, are four of the five major cities of the Philistines situated to the west of Jerusalem. The last place mentioned in this campaign of conquest in verse 8 is Jerusalem itself. But unlike all of the other cities in this passage, Jerusalem received the protection of Yahweh. Zechariah 9 verse 8, God says, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. Literally, him who passes by and turns away. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now my eyes, for now I have seen with my eyes. And by the way, in the Old Testament, when God very directly says, I have seen something, that means that He is very, He is intervening. He's very directly involved in the events that are described. The scenario that's presented in verse 8 is that of God encamped around His own house, and we see earlier in Zechariah and also in Haggai, that when he talks about his house, he's talking about the temple that was currently under reconstruction at that point in the city of Jerusalem. There's a very interesting passage in the Antiquities of Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, in which he describes what happened when Alexander turned his attention toward Jerusalem. While Alexander was still in the process of invading Tyre, of laying siege to Tyre, he had sent word to all the cities of the region that they were to pay him the tribute that they had been paying to Darius because he was the one who was going to take over all that land. There was a high priest in Jerusalem at that, na- at that point whose name was Jadua. And apparently Jadua sent word back to Alexander that he would not pay that tribute because of his loyalty and the loyalty of the city of Jerusalem to Darius who had helped them Greatly toward the rebuilding of the temple. Well, that didn't set very well with Alexander. And so after he finished with Tyre and after he finished with Gaza, he set out toward Jerusalem, most certainly to to besiege it and to take it over as he had done all the cities that resisted him in that region. Jerusalem would have been an easy city for him to overthrow after a city like Tyre. But when Alexander, according to Josephus, when Alexander approached the city, Jaduah, the high priest, along with his priestly entourage, came outside the city walls and met Alexander. And when Alexander beheld Jaduah in all of his high priestly garments, he praised the name of Yahweh, and he showed great respect to the high priest. And later... When he was asked why in the world he responded that way, he told his own men that before he had ever left Macedonia to embark on this great campaign of conquest, he had had a vision in a dream of a man dressed exactly like the high priest. And in that vision, that man told him that he would be God's instrument to judge the kingdom of Persia. And so Alexander left Jerusalem just as it was, and he proceeded then to head toward Egypt and to overthrow Egypt after he had been declared pharaoh of Egypt. He then went north and east toward Mesopotamia. He took all of the region that that is now, let me back up a stage here all of what is now Turkey, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Iran. Afghanistan, Pakistan, all of Turkey. His kingdom was huge and expansive and very, very powerful. While he was still in his 20s, Alexander conquered most of that territory. He actually defeated Darius only two years after embarking on this, this uh, campaign. And then the rest of it was just taking property. He accomplished amazing things, but he died at the age, what, one month before turning 33. He died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II in the city of Babylon. He had resolved to rebuild that palace to be his own. Many historians today consider his military career to be the greatest in all of human history. He accomplished amazing things in his short life. But he accomplished nothing in his death. And he most certainly accomplished nothing after his death. We would be gravely mistaken if we concluded that this passage is fundamentally about Alexander the Great. Alexander was merely an instrument in the hands of God, just as Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib and Cyrus and Darius and many, many others had been before him. The one who's actually doing the conquering in this passage is Yahweh. Verse 1 says, The burden of the word of Yahweh against the land of Hadrach and Hamath also. Verse 4 says, says, Behold, the Lord will dispossess Tyre and cast her wealth into the sea. Verse 5, God speaking says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. The conqueror in this passage is not Alexander. He's an instrument. The conqueror is God. And the goal of his activity, the objective of the military campaign that is recorded in this passage goes very much further than anything that Alexander accomplished in his day. He was merely, Alexander was merely a foreshadowing in one aspect of his life, the military aspect, he was a foreshadowing of another man. The man that this passage is ultimately about. That man also died in his early 30s. Not in a king's palace in Babylon, but on a cross outside of Jerusalem. By human measures, that man accomplished far less in his earthly life than Alexander. But in his death... He accomplished the greatest deliverance and victory in the history of the universe. That man is coming back. And that's what this passage is about. He's coming back to claim his dominion over this whole earth. And the end point of this campaign of judgment and conquest is the glorious return and righteous reign of the promised King from the line of David. The one that God in this passage says to Jerusalem is your king. The one whose dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning considering what this passage tells us about that man and about his agenda. In order to do that, we need to make one more pass through the narrative of this campaign briefly from a slightly different vantage point. Because this passage is, as I said, about much more than Alexander's military victories. In fact, the enemies that are targeted by this conquering king are the enemies of God and they are the mortal enemies of every man and of all men in every age. The first enemy that's mentioned is the wisdom of men. Verse 2, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. The second enemy that's mentioned is the security of men. Verse 3, Tyre built for herself a fortress. The third enemy is the wealth of men. Tyre piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. The fourth enemy is the expectation of men men's false hope in the work of their own hands. Verse 5, Ashkelon will see what God did to Tyre and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. And Ekron will also be in agony for her expectation. Her expectation has been confounded. And the final enemy that's mentioned in this passage of God and of men is the pride of men. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Verse 6. That last enemy is the flimsy foundation for all of the others. It's the root from which all of the others spring. Zechariah's words here are reminiscent of the words given by God to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 28, some of you know right off the bat what that chapter is about. Ezekiel 28 brings these very same enemies of God into focus, either explicitly or implicitly, every one of them. And it's no coincidence that that passage is talking about God's judgment against the ruler of Tyre, which was, in the eyes of men, the most formidable of all the cities that are in this list. Ezekiel 28 verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to read first verses 1. Through five. The word of Yahweh came again to me, to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God. Just blank that out. Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, You are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, your commerce, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. The ruler of Tyre thought he had it made in the shade. (laughs) He had the unusual security of a fortified city, a city with 150-foot walls, with the harbors on the north and south that were incredibly well protected so that, that they could do trade with all the nations in the whole Mesopotamian region. A city situated in a perfect location, a city that had achieved vast wealth and prestige, all of which reinforced the ruler's perception of his own exceptional wisdom among men. His hope was in all that he had right at his fingertips. In verses 6 through 10, God declares to him that he, Yahweh, will bring the most ruthless of all the nations against the city of Tyre. He says that the ruler of Tyre will die the death of the uncircumcised the death of those who have no covenant standing before God. And that his death will be at the hands of strangers, foreigners that he has not known. That's exactly what happened. During the seven-month siege of Tyre, Alexander's armies constructed a causeway between the coast of Lebanon and the island fortress of Tyre. They moved their fortifications, their siege works, close to the city and they pounded and they pounded until the eastern wall of that city came down and then they overtook the city and they tore the entire thing down so that Alexander could use the precious carved stones of that city for his own purposes. As this passage in Ezekiel proceeds, it makes a subtle transition from talking about the human ruler of Tyre to talking about a far more powerful ruler with a far larger domain, who was guilty of the same prideful rejection of God, the one who was controlling the puppet strings of the ruler of Tyre, the one referred to in the passage as the anointed cherub who guards the holy presence of Yahweh, the angel who was in the most coveted position of all angels. The passage says that his heart was lifted up because of his beauty, that he corrupted his God-given wisdom by reason of his own splendor. And he was thus cast down by the hand of God from God's holy mountain. He was cast down as profane. The ruler, that ruler behind the curtain, is Satan. All of the sins that God is going to judge come back to one essential sin. Pride. Exaltation of self In the place of God. The God who alone is worthy of exaltation. God hates the prideful self-exaltation of men and of angels. From cover to cover, God's word makes it clear that, that man's prideful refusal to humble himself before God, to submit to God, guarantees that man's downfall at the hands of God. When men profess to be wise with a wisdom that comes from anyone other than God, they prove themselves to be fools, destined to destruction. Read Romans chapter 1. When men profess to be wealthy with riches that consist of anything other than the treasure that God is as their inheritance, they prove themselves to be miserable and poor and wretched. Read our Lord's letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. When men profess to find safety and security in anyone or anything other than God alone, they prove themselves to be utterly vulnerable, unprotected, lacking in any security at all. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. There is only one who is worthy of man's fear. And there is only one who provides real safety. When men profess to find hope in anyone or anything other than God alone, they prove themselves to be as we all once were. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2. The one and only hope that does not disappoint is the promise that comes from a God who cannot lie. Wisdom, safety, security, wealth, hope. Apart from God, these things are nothing but mist, vanity, vapor. When we presume that any of them come from any source other than God, we deny God. And make no mistake, these things will not stand. To the extent that that there is still some kind of popular, culturally accepted notion of Jesus in this world, that notion paints him as a gentle, loving, harmless teacher who came to show us how to be tolerant. Tolerant of whatever men choose to believe and to do. But my friends, do not be deceived. The Redeemer King whose return we await is anything but harmless. (laughs) And that's what this passage is about. When he comes back to take up residence in the midst of his redeemed people, in his redeemed place, you know what he's going to do first? He's going to clean house. And that house cleaning over the entire face of the earth will make every other cataclysm, cataclysm after the generation of Noah look like child's play. At the end of this oracle of judgment against the pagan nations, there's a little ray of hope. God says of the Philistines in verse 7, then they also will be a remnant for our God and will be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Our redeeming God is creating a remnant of His people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of this earth. Even among those people who have sought wisdom and wealth and security and hope in the work of their own hands. And you know what? That shouldn't surprise us all that much because we've all done the same thing. And for those who sit here today as the redeemed of God, the only reason that we are is because God was gracious to us, as He will be to some from every nation on this earth. We should bear that in mind, by the way, when we catch ourselves railing against godless men and the things that they do on this earth. May we be far more concerned about pointing men to the coming King and, and preparing those men for His kingdom than we are about seeing to it that they get what we all deserve. <laughs> Verse 8 makes the transition from God's dealings with the pagan nations to His dealings with His own people. He declares that He will protect His house from that army that He just used, that He's going to use to judge His own, to judge all the nations so that that army will pass by and return. And then He speaks of a day that, that hasn't been seen yet when no oppressor will pass over that land again. In verses 9 and 10, God makes a wonderful declaration to his people. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That declaration is at the heart of this entire book. In fact, it's at the heart of the entire Bible. (laughs) Our king is coming back. There are several... Pieces to that declaration of Christ's coming that are presented in this passage. The first in verse 9 is that He is coming with salvation and humility. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And then it says, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. <laughs> now I can just picture what Zechariah's audience was thinking when they heard those words the first time. The first part of that Sounds great, Zechariah. Our great king is going to come and he's going to bring justice and salvation. That's something we can all shout about. But Zechariah, are you sure you heard the second part right? How can it be that the one who is going to enter Jerusalem as the preeminent warrior king, the one who has conquered all the enemies of Israel and Judah from north to south, is described as humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now some point out that it wasn't out of character for a king to ride on a donkey. In First Kings 1 verse 33, King David instructed the religious leaders to have his son Solomon ride on David's own mule to the place where they would anoint Solomon as king over Israel. But as Merrill Lunger very persuasively explains Solomon procured massive numbers of horses during his kingdom to the point that he even exported, sold those horses to the kings of all the surrounding nations. And by the time Solomon's reign was over, there is no example of a king riding a donkey because the vehicle for kings was the finest of all horses that they could lay their hands on. In fact... Alexander himself, there's, his horse, Bucephalus, is one of the most celebrated horses of antiquity. He was a beautiful, dark stallion that, according to the stories recorded by Josephus, Alexander tamed when he was 13 years old. A very strong-willed stallion. In fact, Alexander's father, Philip, when he saw how he had tamed that stallion, said, we need to find a kingdom that's worthy of you. Alexander would never have thought of coming back to his hometown after all those conquests on the back of a donkey. And just in case anyone misses the point of this prophecy of the coming king mounted on a donkey as he enters Jerusalem, Zechariah 9 verse 9 comes right out and says it. It says, Jerusalem's victorious king will come to her humble. That word that's translated humble, shows up more than 70 times in the Old Testament. And you know how it's most often translated? Afflicted or poor. Eugene Merrill points out that this word, quote, is commonly employed with reference to the most impoverished and despised elements of Israelite society, end quote. It's hardly a word that a Judahite would expect to find attributed to the promised deliverer king but this was not judah's first exposure to a prophecy about the coming king that merged the elements of victory and exaltation with the elements of lowliness and suffering and humiliation that same word afflicted occurs twice in another passage in reference to the same person and that passage is isaiah 52 and isaiah 53 that passage begins with the declaration that the one God calls my servant will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then the next ten verses talk about how he will be despised and humiliated and tormented and killed. It says that, that he will suffer all of these things to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. It says that he will be smitten of God and afflicted from the perspective of his people. And in Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. There's that same word again, humble. Yet he did not open his mouth. How afflicted? How afflicted? Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. That's pretty afflicted. As that prophecy in Isaiah unfolds, something amazing happens. It is only after this servant of God has humbly rendered himself as a guilt offering that he will see his descendants, his offspring, that God will prolong his days, that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. (laughs) It is only after his death as a guilt offering for the sins of his people and after his burial in the grave of a rich man that God will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils of battle with the strong. And if you're paying any attention in that passage, it's very clear that in order for those promises to come true after that servant renders himself as a guilt offering and is buried in a grave, he has to be raised from the dead. So you've got the suffering, the humiliation, the death, and the resurrection of Christ right there. 700 years before Christ came, written by the prophet Isaiah. So however perplexing Zechariah's audience may have found God's oracle here in Zechariah 9, this was not their first exposure to a prophecy that spoke of both the humiliation and the exaltation of the coming servant of God in that order. Surely the Judahites of Zechariah's day didn't have the fullness of revelation concerning Christ to clearly understand that the prophecy in this passage was speaking of two different comings of the servant. They didn't have the fullness of revelation to clearly understand that both of these entries into Jerusalem would be associated with amazing victories, but victories of very different kinds. But we do have the fullness of revelation. We get to look at this passage with much clearer vision. And of course, the Gospels of Matthew and John both point explicitly, they cite this verse, Zechariah nine nine, and they declare it to be a prophecy of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The first time Christ came in Jerusalem... He came with salvation and humility. When He comes back the second time, it won't be on a donkey. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how He's going to come back. And that's the return that Zechariah 9 verse 10 is talking about. He's coming back with salvation and humility. He came back with salvation and humility the first time. He is coming back the second time, and he's going to remove all the things that don't belong in the place where he will reside in the midst of his people. Zechariah 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim represents the northern tribes of Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents the southern tribes of Israel called Judah. And the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That would be very easy to see that statement in verse 10 is all positive. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful that God is going to bring about peace? He's going to put an end to all our conflict. Israel of all the nations on the earth has suffered conflict since its inception and it's been relentless He's going to bring peace. There will no longer be a need for horses and chariots and bows and implements of war. Won't that be nice? But we would be mistaken to think that God's people will eagerly lay down their arms and trust in the security and protection of Messiah. The word that's translated cut off twice in this verse occurs more than 160 times in the Old Testament. Forgive me if I like to do word studies. (laughs) Every time that it occurs with God as as the subject, when he's the one doing the cutting off, it's talking about the exceedingly painful work by which God forcefully removes what doesn't belong. In Exodus 31, whoever violates the Sabbath will be cut off from among his people. And twice in that passage, that phrase cut off is equated. It's synonymous with put to death. Psalm 34 verse 16 says, The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. God's work to cut off the horses and chariots and bows of Jerusalem and Ephraim will not be met with ready acceptance by his people. See, before peace comes... God has to do a lot of pruning, even with his own covenant people. By the time we finish this book, especially the last three chapters, it will be very, very evident that God's march of conquest that subjects all the nations to his will once and for all will also subject his own people, his covenant people to his will. And it will not happen painlessly. This is made very evident in a closely related text in Micah chapter 5. It's a text the beginning of which is very famous. How many of you know Micah 5-2? That passage begins with the prophecy of the birth of the one whom God will send to be ruler in Israel. It speaks of his birth as a baby in the city of Bethlehem. Through Micah, God declares that this man will gather the sons of Israel together. He will arise and shepherd the flock of God and the strength of Yahweh. He will be great to the ends of the earth. It says that his goings forth were from the days of eternity. And then it says this one will be our peace. Then after declaring that Israel will be finally be given victory over her adversaries, God says this, And it will be in that day, declares Yahweh, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities. The result clause in verse 13 gets right to the heart of the matter. So that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. See, it, was, it wasn't just the blatantly religious trappings of idolatry that betrayed the idolatrous hearts. Israel and Judah. It wasn't just carved images and sacred pillars and fortune tellers and sorcerers. It was also their horses and their chariots and their bows. It was their fortified cities. They trusted in those military advantages perhaps even more fervently than they trusted in those carved idols that they had to carry around on their shoulders and prop up against corners because if they didn't, they would fall over. Israel and Judah will not readily take their hands off of the the works of their own hands in which they have come to depend any more readily than you and I will. But here's a simple, irrefutable fact. When all this shakes out, we will most certainly let go of those things. God will see to it. And that's not a bad thing. That's a very, very good thing. In order for God to return, to dwell in the midst of his people, he must first cause his people to return to him, to him alone. That's the theme of this whole book. Zechariah 1 verse 3, Return to me that I may return to you. And the way that happens is God makes it happen. You may say, Lord, you can take everything I'm trusting in except this one thing no matter what it is, probably different for each of us. But if you do say that to God, you can be sure that He will ultimately take that away too, if it's not Him. Why do we cling to things that God has over and over declared He is going to remove from our hands in order to give us that which is life indeed? What are we waiting for? (laughs) Do we think that we somehow will have less need of those things later than we do now, but that right now we really have to keep, keep a hold of them because God doesn't provide very well right now. He's falling down on the job. Do we really believe that God isn't willing or able to do good to us now so we have to take the matter of our well-being into our own hands? Do we really believe that God dropped the ball? Sometimes we... We live and think like deists who, who believe that God just sort of wound up the universe and dropped it so it would run its course until he comes back. And we're just left to our own devices. Is that the God of the Bible? Not, not by any stretch. God calls out to us over and over, beginning to end in his word, to tell us there is one thing, there is one thing that is needful now. And that is for you to return to me. With all that you have, with all that you are, without holding anything back. What would you find hardest in this life to do without? What would cause you the greatest anxiety, the greatest grief, if it were taken out of your hands? Whatever it is, If it isn't God alone, you can be sure that the day is coming when you'll give it up. (laughs) He'll take it out of the way so that you no longer trust in it and trust only in him. Beloved, that's a promise, not a threat. And when we start seeing it as a promise, it changes the way we live now. He's working to rid us of those things right now. He's not just going to wait until the end. In fact, a great deal of, this, of the struggle that we face in this life is precisely because, because God is curing us of our dependencies on the things that we can put our hands on. here. It may be a retirement account or a well-padded checking account. It might be a, a house. It might be some material thing or situation that you've already lost that causes you great grief that you are investing lots of emotional energy into getting back. <laughs> if you're counting on anything to make you safe except God, you can be sure that God is working to pry your hands off of it because there is no safety in anything or anyone but God himself. Any other safety is A mirage. If you're counting on the quality of your own wisdom, your own judgment, your own decisions to ensure that it is well with you, that your life goes well, you can be sure that God is working even now to cure you of that delusion because it is precisely that. It is a delusion. If you're counting on the quality of wisdom of your husband to ensure that it is well with you, God is at work to cure you of that delusion because it is not His wisdom that matters. It's His wisdom that matters. If you're trusting in anything as the source of your well-being except God alone, you can be sure that God is at work to tear down that idol so that you will direct your trust, your fear, your love, your allegiance your obedience entirely to Him because that's real life and that's the only real life. Don't believe the lie that says anything else constitutes life. You are bombarded in this world by a lie and God is telling you the absolute perfect truth. For all who are the redeemed of God, these are both stern warnings and precious promises If God left us to our own devices, to our own wisdom, to the work of our own hands to give us well-being, we would be cursed instead of blessed. And that's not the way God does things with His people. May He teach us to rejoice in the tribulations in this life by which He imparts to us perseverance, proven character, and abiding hope. A hope that does not disappoint. The last part of God's declaration to His people about His return, the return of of their King, is that He's coming to bring peace and He's coming to reign over the whole earth. And I take those two together because you can't have one without the other. There will be no peace on this earth until He is the one who reigns over all of it. God is going to make all things new. He's going to speak peace to all the nations. And if you want to know what happens when God speaks, just read Genesis 1. (laughs) Men and women and children from every nation and language and race will be made his treasured inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And those will be the ones who finally discover what real peace is in full. Shalom. Well-being in every aspect of life. Security. Absence of conflict. Wellness. Wealth real prosperity until that day when our savior and master returns to finish out all judgment and all redemption we you and I who believe in him live as citizens in exile there's an already and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God his word tells us that while we wait for the return of our king and for all of the kingdoms of the earth to be subjected to his rule we who belong to him are even now citizens of that coming kingdom. In Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 20, For our citizenship is, present tense, in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. How? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. How will we be conformed to His glory? By Him exerting His power over us and over all of His creation. That's how we get conformed to Christ. That's not a threat. That's a promise. If you belong to Him. And if you don't belong to Him, it is the most grievous threat that you will ever hear. When Jesus came the first time, He came in humility to seek and save that which was lost. And that... That purpose of his first coming, by the way, is still going on through us, his church. He's still seeking and saving the lost. (laughs) But when he returns to this earth the next time, the opportunity for men to repent, to turn from trust in self or in anything else to trust in him alone, that opportunity will come to an end forever and there will be no second chance It is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead, and no man will escape that judgment. And when the one who came in humility returns in triumph, when his campaign of judgment and conquest is done, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. No one will fail to bow to Him. Jesus is coming as judge and as conqueror. Which side will you be on when He comes? If you don't know the answer to that question, may today be the day of your salvation. Dear Father, these things are amazing to us. They are wonderful to us. They are fearful to us. But but Lord, we recognize that we who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior are on the right side of this campaign of conquest. And we will be made joint heirs with Christ. We will share the spoils of His victory with Him only because of Your amazing grace toward us, not because of anything that we have done. We look forward to that day, that terrible and wonderful day of the Lord. We pray, Father, that if there are any here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, the one and only Savior of mankind, as the coming King, as the one who is King over his people even now. We pray, Father, that you would pierce their hearts and cause them to take you at your word to believe in Jesus Christ. Make us who belong to you useful to set the stage for his return. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.